With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. For this last episode of Pride Month, I sit down with Rashad Robinson. He's the president of Color of Change, a civil rights organization that bills itself as the nation's largest online racial justice organization. Before that, Robinson was at GLAAD, formerly known as the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, which makes Robinson an intersectional leader, one with a 360-degree view of the fight for equity and justice in the United States, and explains why he warns against mistaking cultural and media presence for actual power. Presence is visibility, awareness, retweet, shout outs from the state. It's not bad. Presence is, is good, but far too often we can mistake presence for power and we can think we've done something that we haven't actually done. Hear more from Rashad Robinson, a civil rights leader you should be paying more attention to right now. Rashad Robinson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I am so glad we are able to do this conversation. One, because it's the last possible episode uh, of Pride Month, but also because of where we are in the country right now. And if there is one person to talk to about this sort of intersectional moment we're in right now in our country, you are that person. So I'm just going to throw out this broad brush question to you and ask you, what would you say is the state of our union, given the perch that you're in right now? Yeah, I mean, given the perch I'm in right now, I've actually been thinking about this a lot. And I was thinking about this a lot um, as we lost uh, Congressman John Lewis and thinking about all of the political um, and policy change that happened during his time, during that era of the 60s, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, um, spending time with um, Congressman John Lewis sort of later, you know, in his in his tenure, Um, I don't think we're in that same era of big sort of structural policy change. I think we're in this moment of deep cultural shift. You saw it last summer when racial justice became a majoritarian issue. It doesn't mean there isn't backlash. But what I mean by racial justice becoming a majoritarian issue is that many people thought the best we could do in terms of activism at that time was clap outside of our windows or uplift investigative journalism. And it was racial justice that moved people to the streets, moved people to action, led to upticks in voter registration, um, engaged a multiracial coalition even before that. You know, you saw white folks in a Starbucks um, taking out their cell phones and filming a police interaction because of the engagement that a movement. We uh, see television shows like Pose and others being, um, you know, given sort of a marquee billing and, um, and uh, you know, status in award shows. Cultural um, power, cultural presence is incredibly important to fueling the type of political change. It doesn't mean that we can mistake presence for power, but what I think is incredibly important is that we do have to till that soil. So now I think so much of the work is how do we translate this majoritarian issue um, at the intersection of so many different identities? How do we translate these sentiments 
um, into governing sentiments, governing over um, our policies, governing over corporate behaviors, go governing over how media sort of engaging. And I think that's part of the work of advocacy. That's part of the work of organizing. That's the work of policymaking. All right. You you just said a phrase that I, I want you to dive deep on. And that is, you said, we shouldn't mistake present... Presence for power. Yeah. Talk more about that. Yeah. So presence is visibility, awareness, retweets, shout outs from the stage. It's not bad. Presence is, is good, but far too often we can mistake presence for power and we can think we've done something that we haven't actually done, right? We can mistake a black president for thinking that we're post-racial. We can mistake that America loving and celebrating uh, black celebrities means that America loves black people as much as America loves black culture. And America can love and celebrate and even monetize black culture and hate black people at the same time. And when we think about sort of uh, LGBT folks and we think about the sort of visibility, the all the ways in which the LGBT community has shaped culture years before um, we were able to win um, uh, sort of rights um, in government. You, you, you think about sort of the ways we could shape culture, be deeply present, and then at the same time be attacked, be um, uh, disregarded, be uh, put in harm's way. And so the importance of not mistaking presence for power is holding a high standard for change because power is the ability to change the rules. Sometimes they're the written rules of policy and other times they're the unwritten rules of culture. But if we focus on changing the rules, uh, that's scalable, enforceable. Um, it, it actually can lead to the type of uh, long-term um, impact um, that you know communities need. You know, you as you were talking about that, one of the things I thought of is, you know, putting a Black Lives Matter poster in your window or on your, or here in Washington on your front lawn or Black, you know, just proclaiming for all to see. And yet that's the only thing that one does. That doesn't exactly fit with your um, presence as power because that is from the, from the focal point of Black people or LGBTQ folks thinking that because we're on television or because someone from the community is in X position of power, that that means that that person actually has or that the community has overcome. Um, I guess what I was thinking with the BLM poster thing is sort of maybe the performative nature of allyship. Um, where you see people who are like, yeah, I'm down for the cause. Where's, you know, where's my poster or what's the hashtag or what do I do on Instagram today? What color should the square be? <laughs> what color should the square be today? Could you, in, in, in the role that you have at, at Color of Change, I would love to get your thoughts on that sort of performative nature of, of protest, but also allyship. Yeah, it's it's so it's so important, Jonathan, because symbols are not bad. Like people wanting to say the right thing, to do the right thing is not bad, but we have to actually help people understand, help um uh, those that are decision makers over infrastructure and systems understand and and part of what I see my work is is saying, "Great. Thank you for this statement, but here's how you actually live it out," right? Uh Words are, are, are the first step, but words are not going to get you awards. We're going to give you credit when you um, take action. And so, you know, uh, 
there was a lot of performative statements last summer, a lot of statements. I mean, and we'll see it this month, right? We'll see it um, with pride parades um, where major corporations who are giving money to candidates um, and political leaders who put gay folks LGBT people and our families in harm's way, but, you know, have the biggest pride parades and are, you know, putting up signs that say love is love, um, while at the same time um, standing in the way of actually love being love. And so, you know, we work really hard to actually move real structures of accountability, um, helping um, our 7.2 million members really take action, strategically directing them at the places for which showing up is gonna actually matter and move folks. And so not mistaking presence for power is important and not accepting charitable solutions to structural problems. And what I mean by that is not celebrating just simply sending water bottles to Flint when corporations should be paying their fair share so the pipes actually are clean. Not simply celebrating um, an after school program in inner city schools when public education has been defunded and um, our schools need those after school programs because the schools don't actually work. You know, not simply celebrating uh, reentry programs if we're we're not working to end mass incarceration on the front end. It is about how do we look at the problem? And it's also about how do we talk about the problem? And what I mean by that is, you know, we work really hard to continue to push folks, whether they're in corporate America, the media or or politics, to put the active voice on the systems and the passive voice on the people. And what I mean by that is um, black people are not less likely to get a loan from the bank banks are less likely to give loans to black people. And that may seem like semantics, but what that really means is the difference between um, folks doing just financial literacy programs to help black people do better inside of institutions which have harmed, exploited, targeted, and redlined us from the beginning, or actually focusing on structural change. And so putting the active voice on the system actually leads us to work to solving the system because far too often um, institutions that that want to put up signs are asking, how do they help black people? How do they help queer folks? How do they help uh, trans folks? How do they help whoever um, has been marginalized, targeted and attacked? How do they help them? Instead of how do they change the systems and structures and business models that actually have put those communities in harm's way? Anybody actually interested in changing those systems? You know, it's it's there's a varying degree. You know, we um, you know have been rolling out these uh, racial equity audits all throughout um, both the financial industry and Silicon Valley, and there are companies that you know are not perfect, but have have taken on the task of trying to deal with racial equity. We have this program called um, uh, um, Change Hollywood, which really focuses on the big uh, you know players in the industry of, of really looking at how um, uh, racial inequity has stalled careers, has created challenges in terms of the content we get. We have a, a program called Beyond the Statement, and we launched our, our full platform on beyondthestatement.org. And Beyond the Statement is a platform that go, looks at the financial industry and the tech industry and pushes those industries to go beyond the words and provides real frameworks. And yes, 
Because of racial justice becoming a majoritarian issue, we have more employees inside of these companies than ever before speaking up and making demands, saying, hey, you know, you all said that Black Lives Matter. Now, what are you actually doing to make Black Lives Matter? And what we're trying to do is provide the frameworks, the roadmaps for these companies to actually do the hard work. It's hard work undoing um, models that have uh, produced oppression, have produced inequality. Um, it's hard to undo that. And so part of what we want to do is not just simply scream from the outside, not simply make demands, but play a role of both being very clear about what success looks like and then providing the tools and the frameworks to help folks get there. You know, Rashad, I put the cart before the horse because I just realized folks might not know what color of change is, what kind of organization it is. So talk about color of change. Um, what does it do? Why does it exist? So Color of Change was founded after Hurricane Katrina. So almost 17 years now um, in the aftermath of a flood, right, that was caused by bad decision makers that turned into a life-altering disaster by bad decision makers. And that's important that we remember that, right? Uh, Black people were literally on their roofs begging for the government to do something and left to die. And the thing about Katrina and the thing about a lot of moments like COVID and other moments like this is that they illustrate things that people already know, right? Geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impacts of what we've done to our planet, the impacts of all of these sort of various systems that are unequal and the ways in which structural racism undergirds it all. But at the heart of Katrina, no one was nervous about disappointing Black people, government, corporations, media. And so Color of Change really started as a response in the digital age. An email sent out to a thousand people right after that, uh, that um, uh, telethon where Kanye West said that George Bush doesn't care about Black people. In fact, the first email subject line said Kanye was right. And we got all these T-shirts. I wasn't at Color of Change at the time, but when I first got there, there were all these T-shirts that say Kanye was right. I still have one. Um, thankfully, the COVID pounds have like made it, not, made it not work as much as they it used to work because sometimes you put it on by mistake and show up to the gym and like you're in the wrong news cycle for Kanye. <laughs> um, and they're like, Kanye was right about what? What? Um, um, and, um, but... But all of that to say, right, you know, we, um, you know, I, I had, we had this moment of it and we've, we've grown, right, because of an open internet, because of uh, the ability to actually run campaigns that gave people the ability to uh, translate uh, what was happening in the world into uh, their demand. So leading campaigns to get Glenn Beck and Pat Buchanan and Bill O'Reilly fired. But those were market-based campaigns that mobilized folks to challenge uh, media, to challenge advertisers all focused on giving folks a choice. We led a campaign to force um, corporations to make a choice about whether or not they were gonna stand with black communities or whether they were gonna continue to contribute to the American Legislative Exchange Council that was behind discriminatory voter ID laws and stand your ground laws. And over the last several years, have built efforts in Hollywood, have worked across the criminal justice system, have built a movement around progressive prosecutors, helping to get prosecutors elected locally, but also working to hold them accountable to produce 
real reform. And so what I mean by that is there's a lot of presence about the criminal justice system, a lot of presence about police accountability. What we tried to do was build power around where do we put the effort in the energy that can actually move um, real results. And we focused on prosecutors and then we engaged our members around it. We worked to um, fight back against white nationalists, um, not just calling them out, but holding the credit card companies that process fees and payments for them accountable and getting Amex and MasterCard and, and American Ex and, and Visa to stop processing fees. And then over the last several years, folks may have seen some work we've been doing in the tech world to fight disinformation and misinformation and the, all the ways in which big companies like Facebook and um, Twitter and Google have profited off of hate through algorithmic bias, through um, their business models. And we, you know, co-led along with a, a couple of other groups, the Stop Hate for Profit campaign last summer, which was the largest boycott in terms of money um, in, in American history. I came to this organization from GLAAD. Um, and, you know, at the time, 10 years ago, it was a big deal, an openly gay uh, man leading a national civil rights organization. I'm, I'm glad to say it's not as big of a deal um, anymore. But since coming to this organization and, and throughout my whole life, I've tried to build work, tried to run campaigns that were always at the intersection, not thinking that you had to be one thing or the other, and also recognizing the sort of power of that concept of the curb effect, that if we actually deal with issues that impact folks that are oftentimes most marginalized, most targeted and attacked, we can sort of scale up um, opportunity for all of us. So it's the opposite of trickle-down policymaking. It is actually producing change that sort of if we start from the folks who are at the bottom, we can sort of make so much opportunity for all of us. And so that's both the sort of how I show up at Color of Change and how the organization, which now has over 7 million members, um, about 150 staff and works um, all around the country to really uh, both hold government corporations accountable um, to the needs and concerns of black folks with the goal of winning uh, justice for all of us. So, I mean, seven, uh, seven million uh, members in, in 10 years. Like we were about 650,000 members when I started uh, 10 years ago. And so we've had a tremendous, uh, tremendous amount of growth, um, a tremendous amount of sort of new reach. Um, and with that, you know, we have a new level of diversity in the organization, right? Um, because racial justice has become an issue that more people care about. We have more white folks and non-black folks part of the organization than ever before. And we've had to think about how do we provide meaningful pathways to them uh, while also continuing to center our, our members that are at the core of our work. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. And that's what I was going to ask you. How has the work changed Let's just focus on your your 10 years there, which, I mean, 10 years is a long time, but in terms of the 10 years, the last 10 years of America's life, especially the last four, have been quite something. Has the nature of your work or the intensity of your work changed in that time? Well, I mean, just a quick, a quick couple of just 
pieces of nuggets of information. When I came to Color of Change back in 2011, I had friends tell me like, why would you leave? Why would you leave GLAAD? That's the civil rights movement of our time. You know, like Obama's president, you know? Um, we're popping <laughs> bottles in the White House. Um, um, people said that. Um, this was before Trayvon Martin. When I got to Color of Change, our biggest social media presence was on MySpace. Um, and um, yes, remember MySpace. So that, you know, that was, um, there was a whole different way in which, whole different speed at which the organization was able to move, whole different sort of pace of the work. But there was no Black Lives Matter movement. There was no Black Lives Matter. And even those first couple of years of Black Lives Matter, when you said Black Lives Matter, people said you were racist. It wasn't performative. We weren't even in a place where people were willing to put those signs up or raise a flag or put it on the streets. Um, you were dismissed for, for saying it. You get, I'd get a lot of emails from people that say, can't you just say Black Lives Matter too? Um, um, or as well. And I get the sentiment. Like I got the sentiment that people were struggling with where the compromise was. Um, but with the recognition that I have is how powerful racial justice is as a persuasion vehicle. How many people have been persuaded over the last 10 years. I mentioned white folks in a Starbucks taking out their cell phone to film a police interaction and then posting it and knowing sort of that something was happening in front of them. I think about all of the families and, and folks who are not black who showed up um, this past summer to protest, to speak out, who stood up at work. I think about the where those folks might have been on this issue five years ago or seven years ago. And it gives me so much optimism about what is possible. I think about the progressive prosecutors, not only that we've elected, but the folks we've elected who went in to do the things that we've wanted them to do have faced tremendous backlash. I'm talking about Larry Krasner and Kim Fox, um, Kim Gardner in St. Louis County, and then have got reelected. Um, and I look at sort of what that actually means for how we've really raised the floor on what's acceptable and pushed up the ceiling on what's possible. Um, and that gives me, um, I think, so much hope. Um, it gave me so much hope when I was at GLAAD, right? I got to GLAAD in 2005 at a time where like handing out a business card where the first word on it was gay. Um, you know, you like you dealt with that, you know, you it was a very different time in 2005. Um, it was right after those mayors that were getting slapped down for marrying couples after the Massachusetts decision. And I left right as New York, the state I was raised in was marrying couples. Um, and that sort of culture shift of 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 getting there and and, you know, the stories of, you know, what happened to Ellen when she came out to like leaving as like the most some of the most popular shows on air were gay fighting, you know, to make sure that like um, the right didn't attack Glee too much because it had a high school student that was so openly gay to now seeing a world in which a show about high schoolers that does not have an openly gay or trans character is questioned for how, um, what agenda they might have by not in, being inclusive. And so that sort of culture change, that, that um, tilling of the soil is what we talk about at Color of Change is one of the cores to our work, which is narrative change. And we think about narrative change is not about like messaging or, or stories alone. Narrative change from like a 
you're like a computer geek, you'll get this a little. If Or if you even just have a computer, you'll get this. If narrative change is sort of like, narrative is like the operating system on your computer. And the messages that we use is kind of like the software. And if we put software into an operating system that's not designed for it, it's going to spit it back out, right? It's not going to let us do what we want to do. And so part of tilling that soil, changing the conversation, changing the rules, changing the power structure allows us to put more soft, different software into the operating system. It allows us to achieve more, win more. It creates more possibility. It creates the opportunity for a pose to exist. It creates an opportunity for the next thing to exist. And that, right, that type of change, right, is so incredible um, and so exciting. All right. I got to get you on on two things, uh, because as always happens when you and I when you and I talk, time flies. But you you posted on Twitter recently um, and it was, you know, hyping a conversation you were having on a on another on another network, television network. But you wrote the black LGBTQ plus community is and has been a catalyst for some of the most progressive civil rights wins in this country, but we still have work to do. Talk about that first part of the the phrase, which is been a, a catalyst for some of the most progressive civil rights wins in this country. Of course, my mind goes immediately to Stonewall. Right to Stonewall. Like, you know, I, I'm I'm a New Yorker, and so I think about um, I think about the the folks who were not seen or heard or visible, just trying to live. And so much of activism, right, is about people just trying to live. This is not about always deep strategy sessions. It's about people having enough and standing up and pushing back. And I think about the black and brown. Uh, queer, you know, uh, gender non-conforming, trans, um, gay, lesbian folks at the heart of that movement. I think about the community of care that had to be created during the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic and the people who who stood up and whose names we will sort of never know and stood up in their communities and pushed back. I think about Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin and um, and Lorraine Hasbury and so many folks who refuse to like um, mute aspects of themselves, even in the face of having their contributions minimized, of, of having asterisks put next to their names, of, of Bayard Rustin having to sort of um, play a, a sort of back seat role to um, a, a march that he planned uh, because right. of the of the attacks, I, I think about those contributions in that work and that sacrifice, and I and I and I I'm I'm just in awe and humbled to be part of of that legacy, to be um, hopefully a, a holder of that story. There is this T-shirt um, that goes around that says like. Um, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. And I, yeah. I, I, I think there's like a different spin. I was having a conversation um, with a friend about this. And there's a different spin because our ancestors had their own wildest dreams. And I think in some ways, this is a not about being their wildest dreams. This is about um, making good on what they contributed. It's about recognizing that at every phase, we will have our own wildest dreams. So as I look at the next generation, right, as I look at like uh, Richie Torres and Mondaire, who are about 10 years younger than me, and me growing up and sort of like cutting out the idea of ever like running for office, thinking like, oh, that's, 
you know, black, gay, that's not going to really happen. And right, seeing them unapologetically run for office, I think about sort of how much progress and opportunity can be achieved when we focus on building power, when we don't just simply think about presence, but we think about what does it mean to change the rules, change what people believe is possible. You mentioned uh, Mondaire and Ritchie, both members of Congress, Mondaire Jones being the first out gay black man elected to Congress, Ritchie Torres being the first out Afro-Latino, and he identifies as both Afro-Latino man elected to Congress um, just in 2020. The last question for you, and you touched on, I'm sure your answer is going to be a little repetitious, but I can't have you here and not ask just your impressions of the insane conversation that is happening in this country about critical race theory and how people are losing their minds over something they don't understand at all and applying that that phraseology to just about everything that annoys them by them, I'm talking about Republicans and being more specific, white people who are really uncomfortable about having to discuss race and racism and its centrality to everything in this country. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of folks, if they discuss the past and history, they have to reckon with their role or maybe their family's role in that past in history. You know, this this conversation is not new, right? We led a campaign a couple of, about two years ago, um, uh, forcing uh, a bunch of the uh, wedding companies, like the, the, the magazines and the platforms, the Knot and Martha Stewart Wedding, to stop um, doing spreads on plantation weddings. Right. Uh, Because uh, plantations are these spaces that are sort of celebratory and they talk about as places where people worked and labored and 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 not places where people were forced into servitude and and all of the other things that happened to to black folks um, on plantations. Um, You know, we we want to erase history in this country uh, because um, to understand the history will force us to actually have to reckon with it, which will force us to have to um, be in a conversation about restitution. And so it's not just that people don't like all three of those words, like critical race and theory are like three words that Americans don't like, period, and now they're all together. But at the same time, it is, a, it is really about, um, in so many ways, and what, and what I, I want your listeners to understand is that this is not about professors. This is not about um, like academics. This is about your children. And this is about your children, whether they are of color or whether they are white being able to like learn about the world around them, being able to be educated about the history and being able to be able to make decisions. And what is being done is to prevent kids from learning about history because there are many adults that don't want young people to ask them the questions about where they were, what they were doing, how they showed up. And so it's better to erase than to actually engage, to be in a conversation. Um, but we cannot let that happen. And so I think that for all of us, 
we should once again center young people. We should center the resilience of them, but we should also center what the future is going to look like in a world where our kids can have access to much information. It was a Texas legislator that said, if kids are old enough to experience racism, they're old enough to learn about it. And I think, you know, whether we're talking about critical race theory, which is not something that gets taught in school because uh, most high school teachers did not study critical race theory. We're actually talking about whether or not we teach about Martin Luther King, whether or not we teach about Rosa Parks, whether or not we teach about Cesar Chavez, um, whether or not we teach about so many of the moments that made this country what it is, and so many of the struggles which have helped define the future that we should all be hopeful to be part of. Now you all see why I've been dying to get Rashad Robinson on this podcast, and I'm going to have to have you back because there's so much more to talk about. Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Happy Pride. Before I go, let me introduce you to a new podcast from Washington Post Opinions. It's called Please Go On, hosted by Post columnist James Homan. Every Friday, James interviews someone who's written an insightful or important op-ed for The Post. His first guest? Vice President Kamala Harris. You might remember James if you listened to his previous show, The Daily 202's Big Idea. A nice compliment to what we're doing here on Cape Up. Please Go On creates a space for guest authors to go deeper on what they've written. I know you'll like it. Check it out. You can find Please Go On with James Homan wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans. Like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.